Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. Boxing Day evening, 1962. The Christmas number one, Top of the Hit Parade, was returned to sender by Elvis Presley. All around the country, families were settling down after a busy two days of eating, drinking and making merry. Small screen entertainment on the TV that evening included a hilarious variety show from the London Palladium featuring Bruce Forsyth and Norman Wisdom, and the BBC's big Boxing Day movie was Moulin Rouge, starring Jose Ferrer and Jar Jar Gabor. And then, it began to snow. A day late and tantalisingly close to giving the country a proper white Christmas, but snow nevertheless. The temperature dropped, and it continued to snow. And it snowed, and snowed, and it got colder. And it snowed, and it snowed some more. And that was how it would be for the next 100 days or so, as Britain was plunged into an icy wilderness that would last until the following March. Industry ground to a halt as businesses and schools were forced to close. There was widespread panic as ambulances and fire crews were unable to respond to emergencies. Essential supplies and medication failed to get through to hospitals, and over half the natural wildlife population died in the freezing temperatures unable to forage for food. Nothing could be done to stop the bitter temperatures and the relentless snowfall. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of the Big Freeze. I'm not only a fighter, I'm a poet, I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. I think it's all over. It is now. It's cool. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. The 
26th of December 1962, the St. Pauli quarter of Hamburg, West Germany. Here, in a side road off the Reaper Barn, the infamous Star Club, past the bouncers, through the doors and into the dimly lit smoke-filled bar, away at the far corner, there's a stage. The stage is drenched in a mixture of sweat, stale beer and cigarette ends. And they're playing their hearts out, their voices roar after singing non-stop for hours on end, four young lads from Liverpool, barely in their teens. The music, what else but rock and roll, with the occasional show tune thrown in for good luck. The last time they were here, they were just four unknown lads fresh out of Liverpool. Here, they grew up and grew up fast, plunged headfirst into a world they had never seen before. A world of prostitutes, booze and pills. Since they were last in Hamburg, they gained a manager, new suits and a new drummer. And best of all, a top 20 single in the UK charts. They had experienced raw pain with the sudden death of not only a band member, but a dear friend. But they were back here, fulfilling a contract they'd agreed to before success had knocked on their door earlier in the year. The contract would be over following their final performance on New Year's Eve, and soon they'd be returning home to Merseyside. A Merseyside that at this particular moment in time was slowly being covered by a layer of snow that would get deeper and deeper and deeper with what almost appeared to be no end in sight. Britain was no stranger to a cold winter. In 1962, many still remembered the winter of 1947, where thousands were cut off by snowdrifts up to 20 feet deep or even more. The country was still feeling the post-war grip of rationing, and supplies had to be flown in by helicopter to villages cut off by the exceptional snowfall. Records indicate that between January and March in 1947, snow fell every day somewhere in the country for 55 days in a row. Temperatures were only barely above freezing, and the snow settled easily. February 1947 was the coldest on record in many places, with Woburn in Buckinghamshire recording an overnight temperature of minus 21 degrees centigrade on the 21st of Feb. And if that wasn't bad enough, it got much worse in March, with further heavy snowfall and gale-force winds creating blizzard conditions, particularly in the north of the country. When the temperatures eventually began to rise in mid-March, it brought along a fresh set of problems. As the snow melted, the frozen ground meant that the water had nowhere to go. It poured furiously into rivers, causing many to burst their banks. Further wind and severe gales brought on by a depression from the Atlantic caused damage to buildings and trees. Winds over southern England averaged about 50 knots with gusts of 80 to 90 knots, creating waves that pounded into and broke through flood defences. Flooding continued across many parts of the UK right through the spring, before eventually subsiding in late March and early April. But all of this was nothing in comparison to what was to come in the winter of late 1962, early 1963. A winter made worse by events that had occurred earlier in the December. Thank you. 
Many still remember the Great Smog of London in 1952, the lethal combination of fog and smoke that brought the city to a near standstill. Visibility was so impaired in some parts of London that pedestrians were unable to see their own feet. The underground thankfully continued to transport passengers across the capital, but all other forms of transportation were severely restricted. Ambulance services were virtually non-existent, leaving people to find their own way into hospitals in the smog. Cars were simply abandoned on the roads, and incredibly indoor plays and concerts were cancelled as audiences were unable to see the stage. The crime rate soared, and there was a massive spike in deaths and hospitalisations relating to pneumonia and bronchitis. There were even reports of herds of cattle choking to death at Smithfield Market. The deadly fog lasted a full five days on the 9th of December 1952. The Registrar-General published the number of fatalities a few weeks later, a number amounting to about 4,000. The effects of the smog were long-lasting, however, and present-day estimates ranked the number of deaths somewhere in the region of 12,000. All of this eventually resulted in the passing of the Clean Air Act four years later in 1956, which established smoke-free areas throughout London and restricted the burning of coal in domestic fires as well as industrial furnaces. Grants were offered to homeowners, which allowed them to switch to other heating sources such as oil, natural gas and electricity. Change would be gradual, however, and ten years later, in the early December of 1962, an almost exact situation would occur. 3rd of December 1962, and there was a thick, choking mist that covered all of the central London area. A spokesman for London's emergency bed service said that 235 people had been admitted to hospital within a 24-hour period, and a red warning was issued to prepare for more patients as it became evident that the public's health was severely at risk. The Ministry of Health provided warnings to those individuals at most risk, such as sufferers of chest and heart complaints, and instructed them to stay indoors and rest as much as possible. Doctors were encouraged to prescribe masks for vulnerable patients, or do-it-yourself masks, such as thick cotton gauze or a scarf around the mouth and nose. The public were also told to only use coke or other smokeless fuel, not to burn rubbish or to light bonfires and to keep the windows closed. Within three days it had spread to most parts of the country. Leeds recorded its higher ever level of sulphur dioxide in the air and in Glasgow the number of cases of pneumonia trebled. And as the temperature began to fall rapidly and with the fog spreading to 22 counties throughout England, driving conditions became extremely hazardous with visibility varying from zero to 50 yards. And if that wasn't enough, black ice in London, East Anglia and the Midlands and most of southern England only added to the danger. After a series of minor accidents on an icy stretch of road on the A12, it was described as a battlefield by an AA spokesman. People didn't stay out for long if they could possibly help it. The foul metallic taste in the mouth and the constant irritation of the nose and eyes often proving too much to bear. Cases of bronchitis increased significantly, especially amongst children. It was estimated that in the City of London alone, the air pollution led to 133 excess deaths, with Greater London as a whole seeing what is believed to be somewhere in the region of 700 deaths in total. 
The Clean Air Act, despite being in force for nearly six years, only dealt with smoke emissions and not the discharge of sulphur dioxide. According to the figures produced by the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research, the level of smoke in London at the peak of the 1962 smog was two and a half times higher than an average winter day. The level of sulphur dioxide was an incredible seven times higher. The cold snap that accompanied the week-long disruption soon disappeared briefly, with the next two weeks being described as changeable and stormy. The briefest of respites before Britain would be gripped in its coldest winter for more than 200 years. A winter that would see temperatures so cold that the sea would freeze in places. A winter that would bring blizzards, snowdrifts and temperatures lower than minus 20 degrees centigrade. It was colder than the winter of 1947 and the coldest since 1740. A taste of what was in store happened briefly between the Great Smog and Christmas 1962, when a wintry outbreak brought snow to the country on the 12th and the 13th of December. Blustery storms and rain were the order of the day for most places over the following 10 days, and the country breathed a sigh of relief that the smog had finally dissipated with Christmas just around the corner. But on the 22nd of December, a high-pressure system moved to the northeast of the British Isles, dragging bitterly cold winds across the country. As the cold easterly set in, an anti-cyclone formed over Scandinavia, drawing the cold continental winds across from Russia. A belt of rain over northern Scotland on the 24th of December turned to snow as it moved south, giving Glasgow its first white Christmas since 1938. The snow belt reached southern England on Boxing Day and parked itself firmly over the country bringing a snowfall of up to a foot deep. That evening, the severe conditions in and around Crewe caused points to become frozen and many trains were being detained at signals. About midway between Winsford and Crewe, the 1330 Glasgow Central to London Euston, the midday Scot, hauled by an English electric Type 4 diesel D215 with 13 coaches and 500 passengers, was stopped at a signal. But the driver found the telephone to Coppenhall Junction, the next signal box ahead, out of order. Seeing the next signal ahead, he decided to proceed down towards it and use the telephone there. Travelling too fast for the treacherous conditions, in the darkness he failed to notice the 1645 Express from Liverpool to Birmingham. It was hauled by an electric locomotive with eight coaches containing some 300 passengers and it was standing on the line ahead. The midday Scot collided with it at about 20 miles an hour. The collision killed 18 passengers, four of them children. 33 other passengers and one railwayman were seriously injured. All of these casualties were in the two rear coaches of the Liverpool train which were telescoped after a coupling fractured. One of those on board ran a mile through the deep snow to summon help, driven on by the screams of the trapped passengers. 
passing motorists to line their cars so that their headlights illuminated the scene to aid rescuers. The cattle shed at a nearby farm was used as a temporary mortuary. Throughout the Christmas and New Year period, the Scandinavian high collapsed, but then a new high developed over Iceland, bringing bitter northerly winds. As the air mass moved south, significant snowfall occurred across southern England. Blizzards followed on the 29th and 30th of December, causing snowdrifts over 20 feet deep thanks to gale-forced easterly winds. Roads and railways were completely blocked, and villages were cut off, many without power, as scores of power lines came crashing down. For the first time in living memory, what can only be described as mini icebergs formed in the Mersey and drifted out towards the Irish Sea, creating yet another hazard for shipping and passenger vessels that were already struggling against huge waves and gale-force winds. As the month and the year came to a close, the continuing freezing temperatures ensured that the snow cover would last for more than two months in most parts of the country. There were snowdrifts in Kent up to eight feet deep. 15 feet deep further west towards Cornwall and Devon, and even Manchester city centre had snowfall up to six inches in places. In Tymouth, then part of Northumberland, the wind chill factor was equivalent to that in Omsk, Siberia. The Solent, straight between the Isle of Wight and the English mainland, froze over, leaving onlookers horrified at the sight of the frozen waves interspersed with the wings of trapped seagulls. And this was how it would be until early March 1963, as much of England remained under a blanket of snow for another 10 weeks. By the 3rd of January, Elvis had been deposed from the number one spot by the UK's very own hip-swinging rock and roller Cliff Richard, who remained at the top of the charts for three weeks with The Shadows and their double-A side the next time, and Bachelor Boy. When I was young, my father said, Son, I have something to say. And what he told me I'll never forget until my dying day He said, son, you are a bachelor boy And that's the way to stay Son, you be your bachelor boy until your dying day Not surprisingly, whilst I've been researching for this episode I couldn't find any new UK cinema releases for the month of January 1963 Hardly surprising, really, when you consider that the last thing people would be wanting to do is to traipse out into the Arctic conditions to watch a film. Ironically, believe it or not, the first movie releases in the UK in 1963 occurred on the 18th of February. One was the John Wayne African animal adventure Hatari, and the other, well, wait for this, it was Cliff Richard again in, of all things, Summer Holiday. Going 
sun shine brightly. We're going where the sea is blue. We seen it in the movies. But back to early January, snow would continue to fall and of course it would also continue to settle on the snow that was already on the ground. Between the frequent snow showers there was plenty of sunshine, but the weak winter sun did little to warm things up. Mean maximum temperatures in January were below zero degrees centigrade in many places. In several places in southern England and Wales it was more in the region of minus five. Mean minimum temperatures were well below freezing for the duration of this unbelievable winter. On the 18th of January, an incredible temperature of minus 22.2 degrees C was recorded in Braemar in Scotland. To this day, January 1963 remains the coldest month since January 1814 in central England. Although for the UK as a whole, and in northern England, Scotland and Northern Ireland, February 47 and February 1895 were colder. But at the end of the day, statistics didn't really matter. What mattered that it was below freezing? Snow was continuing to fall. There was the added hazard of freezing fog, and there appeared to be no end in sight. In January 1963, the conditions were so bad that the sea itself froze for one mile from shore at Herne Bay in Kent. The sea also froze inshore in several places, wiping out many of Britain's inland waterbirds' usual last resort of finding food in estuaries and shallow seas. The sea also froze four miles out to sea from Dunkirk, and even the Thames itself froze over at its upper reaches, with newspapers reporting that a car had managed to drive over its frozen surface at Oxford. It didn't, however, freeze in central London, as had been the case during the famous River Thames frost fairs, which reached their peak in the mid-17th century. This was partly due to a number of factors, including the addition of river embankments, the removal of the multi-arched London Bridge, which had previously obstructed the free flow of the river, and also the hot effluent being pumped out of two of the capital's massive thermal power stations at Battersea and Bankside. The Navy managed to keep Chatham Dockyard open by using an icebreaker, but the London docks remained closed with ice flows and mini icebergs on the river. The freeze began to claim lives. A milkman named William Starkey, aged 61 from Essex, was found slumped over the steering wheel of his milk float early one morning in the January. A nurse passing by found him and attempted to revive him, but she couldn't. It later came to light that Mr Starkey had struggled to deliver his round since the early hours, but then became trapped by deep snow and overcome by the cold. The snow continued, the temperatures remaining steadfastly below freezing. Sharp pointed icicles over three foot long hung dangerously from rooftops and gutters as the country battled its way into February.
After Cliff Richard's three-week reign at the top of the charts, February would herald in a further three-week stint at number one for two former members of The Shadows, Jet Harris and Tony Meehan with Diamonds. The Beatles returned from Hamburg on New Year's Day and immediately drove up from London to Scotland for a week-long series of gigs. Throughout the entire period of ice, frost and snowfall, the treacherous conditions appeared not to affect the Fab Four as they travelled the length and breadth of the country day after day with barely a day's rest. Brian Epstein had arranged 85 gigs along with dozens of radio and TV appearances in what seemed like virtually every town or city from Land's End to John O'Groats. Their second single, Please Please Me, was released on the 11th of January and it gradually appeared that all of their hard work was finally paying off as it made its way gradually up the charts. On Monday, the 11th of February, the Beatles arrived at EMI's Abbey Road Studios to record their first album. In a marathon 12-hour recording session, the Beatles recorded numerous versions of the 10 tracks that would make up the LP. The studio usually closed at 10, but there was one more song left to record. The decision was taken to stay just long enough to record that final track. The boys' voices were raw, having sung their hearts out since 10 that morning. But despite all of this, John Lennon said he was up for it, all the more remarkable as the final track was possibly the one that would put the greatest demand on his vocal abilities. They would have just one chance to record Twist and Shout. And by all accounts from those that were there that evening, they witnessed something truly magical as John Lennon's hoarse, raspy voice belted out the Isley Brothers tune. John and the boys did actually have one more crack at it immediately afterwards, but this was definitely a one-shot deal, as John's vocals in the second take were just too far gone to be usable.
And as we're on the subject of the Beatles, what was happening with the Rolling Stones? Well, their first single, the cover of the Chuck Berry hit Come On, will not be released until June. And like the Beatles, they were still doing their best to perform throughout the Big Freeze with varying degrees of success. For example, at one gig at the Ealing Jazz Club, the wintry conditions were so bad only two people managed to turn up. But on the other hand, fate smiled down upon them on January the 17th when they were asked to perform at the Crawdaddy Club at Richmond, as the band that had originally been booked there were unable to get through the snow. 300 teenagers, mods, rockers, students and shop assistants turned up to witness what was described as primal sexuality that poured off the stage and onto the dance floor. February continued to be stormy, with winds reaching gale force 8 in places. A blizzard lasting 36 hours caused heavy drifting snow in most parts of the country. Drifts reached 20 feet in some areas, and the gale force winds continued reaching up to 81 miles per hour. On the Isle of Man, wind speeds were recorded at an incredible 119 miles per hour. And how about this? The song that knocked Jet Harris and Tony Meehan off the top spot... Frank Highfield and the Wayward Wind. Oh, the wayward wind is a restless wind. A restless wind that yearns to I guess the sound of the outward bound Made me a slave To my wandering ways On the wayward wind Is a restless wind A restless wind That yearns to wander I tried my best to settle down She's now alone With a broken heart And the wayward wind Is a restless wind A restless wind That yearns to wander Next of kin to 
One of the saddest aspects of the big freeze of 62-63 was the suffering experienced by the country's natural wildlife population. It's estimated that an incredible 50% of the UK's bird population didn't survive that winter. The most successful type of bird, however, were the raptors such as hawks and eagles, who even then just barely managed to hunt enough food to survive. Most wild birds had so much difficulty in obtaining food, it was noticed that small garden birds had started to eat other dead birds in order to survive, behaving exactly like their raptor cousins. With ponds, lakes and rivers frozen for weeks on end, tens of thousands of water birds and wildfowl starved or froze to death. And incredibly, the wild birds and their lack of food supply impacted on farmers around the country, with the Ministry of Agriculture advising them to shoot sparrows on sight as they were flocking in their hundreds seeking food from the stored animal grain and the crops in the farmyards. The stored grain and animal food was piling up as farmers were unable to get it out to their livestock. On Dartmoor, towards the beginning of the Big Freeze, 6,000 animals went without food for four days until helicopters arrived to drop in supplies. On the 6th of January, as the next wave of snow blasted in, it was reported that over 1,300 sheep, ponies and bullocks were dug out of drifts on Dartmoor. And in Hampshire, residents were warned to avoid the New Forest ponies as they'd started to turn feral and they were attacking anybody that they thought might be carrying food. We've already heard about the horrific train crash on Boxing Day that claimed the lives of 18 people, but that was only the worst of hundreds of other accidents across the rail network. It was a never-ending battle over the three months to clear lines and keep stations open. The first beaching report would be published a couple of weeks after the thaw set in. It recommended the closure of nearly 6,000 miles of Britain's railway track in an effort to increase the efficiency of the country's nationalised railway system. But nature managed to beat him to it, and the horrendous weather conditions managed to shut down much, much more, albeit temporarily, as many lines did manage to reopen and stay open most of the time. Sporting events of course were severely disrupted in the winter of 62-63 in the UK, with football matches in the English and Scottish leagues bearing the brunt of the upheaval. Some matches in the 62-63 FA Cup final were rescheduled 10 or more times. The pools panel sat regularly to adjudicate the postponed matches in order to provide the football pools results. When the thaw eventually arrived, the backlog of fixtures had to be hastily determined. The Football League season was extended by four weeks from its original finishing date of the 27th of April, with the final league fixtures taking place one day before the rescheduled FA Cup final. Some lower level competitions didn't even manage to complete the season. National Hunt horse racing was also affected by the weather. 
There was no racing in England between the 23rd of December and the 7th of March, with a total of 94 meetings being cancelled throughout the freeze. Although somehow a meeting at Air in Scotland went ahead on the 5th of January. Finally, on the 4th of March, the grip of the big freeze began to relax when a southwesterly flow of air reached the British Isles. By the 6th of March, there was no frost anywhere, and the temperature in London soared to a balmy 17 degrees centigrade, the highest since October 1962. The remaining snow disappeared, bringing a new set of problems with flooding, but nothing like the scale of the 1947 floods. Winter had ended and life gradually began to return to normal. And through all of this, people still managed to go to work. In an age before central heating was commonplace, most families would crowd into one room to gather around a roaring coal fire, as it was easier and cheaper just to heat the one room. The kids went to school, despite the ink freezing in the inkwells. Postmen and milkmen defiantly made their deliveries. Millions of milk bottles disappearing under the cold white blanket of snow not to be rediscovered until the thaw set in. And police, ambulance crews, the fire service and coast guard all worked tirelessly and valiantly dealing with a whole new manner of issues, incidents and emergency situations. Author Juliette Nicholson writes in her excellent book Frostquake that Britain emerged from the big freeze an entirely different country. Before the snow began to fall on Boxing Day 1962, we were a buttoned up, smoggy, terrified little nation, having just emerged from the Cuban Missile Crisis, still living with 1950s rules, conventions, deference and establishment cover-ups. But once things started to warm up again, Britain emerged, shook itself down, shortened its skirts, tightened its jeans. We discovered the sleazy truth about John Profumo had been up to, and we went Beatles crazy. 1963 would see the Profumo affair, the Great Train Robbery, the birth of Beatlemania, and the assassination of John F. Kennedy. There was Harold Wilson, miniskirts, lava lamps, and the Moors murders. It was the true start of the swinging era in the decade that shook the world. As we head rapidly towards the 2022 World Cup Finals in Qatar, you may be forgiven for thinking that our next episode would surely recount the tale of how England won the World Cup in the summer of 1966. You won't be far off though, as our next episode of Rainbow Valley is the story of not how we won the World Cup in 66, but how we lost it. 
Three months before the World Cup finals were due to take place, the much-coveted Jules Rimet trophy sat proudly on display in central London, only to be stolen in what could only be described as daylight robbery. Fast forward a week or so and the thief is apprehended, but there's no sign of the most famous sporting trophy in the world. That is until an incredible canine steps in to save the day. Why not join me next time as I tell the story of how Pickles the dog became the unlikely hero of the 1966 World Cup final. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley Podcast or send us your thoughts and your feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com. This has been the Stinking Paws production. Thanks for listening. <laughs>